I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to pick up where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 11. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to come to be with your people and to study your word. I pray that as we look again at the life of Moses, you'll enlighten us and help us to see not just what a great man Moses was, but how we apply these truths to our lives. And I pray for the main service that Pastor Steve will be able to preach boldly and clearly, and I pray that our ears will hear. And we pray for the fun day today for the church family, that everything will go smoothly and that it will be a great time of fellowship amongst your people. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, and as we have done in prior weeks, we're going to have several references to the book of Exodus and also Acts chapter 7. This is an interesting opportunity. I really appreciate that God included Acts chapter 7 in the Bible because we have a Holy Spirit-inspired account by Stephen that really sheds a lot of light on the life of Moses, and we're going to see that again today, particularly, I think it's more towards the end of the teaching, but it will be an interesting, I think it'll be interesting to you to see something that we don't see elsewhere in the Bible, but it really provides some clear explanation of some of the things that Moses was doing. But as you recall last week, as we the last couple of times that we've talked out of Hebrews, We've been looking at the life of Moses, and a couple of weeks ago we looked at the life of Moses' parents, and we saw how they, by faith in God, miraculously saved his life. They hid him for three months, and they did not fear man more than they feared God. But then we picked up last week, and we started to look at Moses at an event that was about 40 years later. We're looking in verses 24 to 26. I'll read them again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And as we gave the history lesson last week, we inevitably, we have to come back to it and we have to go briefly through this again, because to understand this point in Moses' life, we have to piece together some different parts. Again, it's very familiar by now, the nation of Israel was not in the land. They were in Egypt. God had miraculously taken Joseph to Egypt, and through the work of Joseph had preserved everyone in his family. And at the time of the end of the book of Genesis... The Israelites were protected. Joseph had been the top man in Egypt, second only to the king, and so they were safe. They had food to eat. Everything was good. And God blessed them, and they multiplied, and they kept multiplying. And as is often the case, it only takes a few generations, and suddenly people forget the past. And a new pharaoh came who didn't remember Joseph. All he saw was not a people that God had used to preserve his own country. What he saw was, in his mind, a pestilence. He needs to get rid of these Hebrew people. And so, as we recall from our prior studies, he had tried to 
get some midwives to kill all of the Hebrew boys. That did not work. Then he made a decree directly to parents, kill your sons, your daughters can live. And as we studied verse 23, it was very clear that Moses' parents did not obey that law. It would have required them to violate God's law. Somehow they knew that God had a special plan for their son. Something even about his countenance conveyed that to them. And so they preserved his life by hiding him for three months. They were motivated by faith. That's what's very clearly taught in Hebrews 11 verse 23. And then in that transition we see this big gap from the first three months of Moses' life in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, to when he had grown up. And that's what verse 24 is talking about. And last week, we filled in some of that information. We filled in some of that information by looking back at Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your place in Exodus chapter 2, because we also filled in from Acts 7. But Exodus chapter 2 picks up that after Moses' parents couldn't hide him any longer, they put him in a waterproof basket. They made a basket waterproof. They put him in there, and he was set along the bank of the Nile River in some reeds to see what would happen. Ultimately, as we recall, and I won't read through all of the text, but it's laid out in Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh's daughter's entourage was there. They found the basket, and Pharaoh's daughter knew immediately he was a Hebrew child, and she had compassion on him. She had pity on him. Pastor Steve and I were talking last week. I alluded to the fact I'm not certain how she knew he was a Hebrew. He pointed out something that should have been obvious. Probably it was due to circumcision. Because he was raised in the home. The eight days the circumcision would have taken place, he was at home with his family. So it could have just been the fact of his circumcision. But either way, Pharaoh's daughter knew that this child was supposed to be killed. That's why she had compassion on him. Because she knew he was supposed to die. And so he... By God's miraculous intervention, Pharaoh's daughter sent Moses back to be raised by his own parents. Up to the point of being weaned in verse 10 of Exodus 2 says the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So at some point in this early life of Moses, his parents handed him off to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we don't know the exact age, but again from our discussions last week it seems that it was at least long enough for Moses to know he was a child of the nation of Israel Moses knew of God he knew that he wasn't an Egyptian however old he was he would have learned something about God and his promises he would have learned that Yahweh was the one true God not all of the gods of Egypt but at this point as we Discussed again in greater detail already. I'm just doing the backdrop because we still need to see all of this. Moses was handed off and then he became a product of the Egyptian system. He wasn't raised Jewish. He was raised Egyptian. Ultimately, that's what happened that brought him to that point And he had the best education, the best opportunities that anyone could have. Acts 7.22, we covered it last week. He was educated in all the learning. He was a man of of deeds. He, He had done things such that even the Egyptians recognized his greatness. And so while he would have been seen as a prince, as Pharaoh's grandson, he was distinguishing himself in his learning and his knowledge. And yet, 
as Exodus 2 makes clear, he still ultimately knew he was a Hebrew. Both Stephen and his account in Acts 7 and the account in Exodus 2 say that at one point Moses went and looked at his people. He knew his people weren't the Egyptians. And his people were the Hebrews and they were being abused mightily. He went down to see what's going on. We don't know fully how much he knew before that, but he would have known that his people were slaves. He would have known that the Hebrew people were mistreated by the Egyptians. And that really is sort of the point where we got to of Moses looking at life and he had everything that life had to offer. He had the best education. He had the best pedigree in terms of his adopted family. He had ability. He had skills. And the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were nothing. They were the downtrodden. They were the lowest of the low. They were, by the Egyptian standard, worthless. So Moses was standing at this point in life, a crossroads, where he has everything. And yet what Hebrews 11 is recording is that he had everything, but he walked away from it because of his people. And that was ultimately that all that backdrop was sort of the launching point of what is saying. When he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And it was all by faith, which means even at this point in his life, I mean, most of what we think about with Moses either is in a basket or he's 80 years old leading the people out of Egypt. That's what sticks in our mind. And yet this is making it clear in the middle of his life he had faith. We piece it together Stephen makes it clear in his account, historical account of the book of Acts, that Moses was approaching 40. So Moses had faith even then, and that faith was put to the test. He saw how his people were living. Despite his education, despite his adopted family, he knew his people were not in the palaces of Egypt. They were in the fields being abused and hurt. There's not a time, there's not a specific quotation where it says, I refuse to be called Pharaoh's daughter. You read through the account in Exodus, you don't see that. You don't see it in Stephen's. But as one commentator I read mentioned, he really did it by his actions. He traded in everything for nothing from a human standard. Except from a biblical, spiritual standard, he got everything and gave up nothing. And that's where we look at today. This sort of gets us the idea here. So let's look a little bit more closely at verse 24 as we summarize a little bit more what's going on. Now, this idea that Moses refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter carries a specific idea. This concept of refuse shows that it was a deliberate choice. That's reinforced in the next verse. When it says choosing, this wasn't happenstance, this wasn't accidental. Moses thought through what he was doing and he consciously chose the path that he chose. This was thought out, this was deliberate. And when he chose, I think is found in Exodus chapter 2 verse 11. So as we look, and when did he refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? When did this happen? I think the the biblical point, this was already developing his heart. He already thought this through. But the turning point, 
we see in Exodus 2.11. It says this, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now I talked about this the last time we met, that he was identifying himself as a Hebrew. He was identifying himself with the oppressed people. He had come down out of the palace, apparently, and gone out and seen what was going on. But verse 12 makes it clear he didn't just look, he acted. Again, imagine you're in Moses' shoes. You're by birth Jewish, by upbringing and privilege and status, you're an Egyptian. And you see the two people groups represented. There's an Egyptian there, likely with the full sanction of the government, at least, you know, if... Pharaoh's wanting to abuse the people. Somebody abusing a Jewish person would have been right in line with things. So Moses is seeing his adopted people, and the person is just destroying one of his brethren. Moses' entire life seems to have funneled down to this one fateful moment. All of his background, all of everything came up. What would his choice be? Now, it's a very poor analogy, but I'll relate it anyway. In 1978, I got to go to an exhibition baseball game. Now, some of you, you probably don't know I like sports. And I like the Seminoles a little bit. But I also love the New York Yankees. The exhibition game was the Seminoles versus the Yankees. Obviously, it wasn't a game that counted. I was 11 years old. And I was sick to my stomach going to the game. Who would I pull for? <laughs> I love them both. Who do I pull for? Somebody's got to win. It was only an exhibition game, but in the turmoil, I had these two people in front of me, these two teams, and I loved them both. And I had this choice to make. How did I do it? Now, again, that's an imperfect analogy, but as I was thinking through this, Moses comes to this point where he sees something of this choice, where he has these people that he has been adopted by. It's his culture. He's a prince. He's a representative of the king. And then he's got this other person that he knows in his heart of hearts. Those are his real people, which had priority. And Exodus 2.12 makes it clear. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. What happened is easy to understand. Moses killed a man. That was it. That was his solution to the problem. The Egyptian was beating the Israelite. Moses had finally had enough, and he protected the man in the way that he thought best. He killed the Egyptian. Stephen says it this way. If you have your hand in Acts chapter 7, he he describes the exact same event, but it puts an emotional component to it, Acts 7.24. Talking about the same event and talking about Moses, it says this in Acts 7.24. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. I think what it makes it clear, this wasn't just Moses on some kind of killjoy, I'm going to murder somebody. I think of another famous biblical example of someone killing someone, and you look at David with Uriah, that was not noble at all. He wasn't defending someone. He was covering his tracks. That's just playing out murder. Here it's clear. Moses was trying to defend an Israelite. 
for the first time that we see Moses took on the role that would later make him famous. He was the protector of the downtrodden. He was the defender of his people. He protected his Hebrew brother. Now, you can get into a long debate about killing and all those other things, which would miss the point here. I do think from Stephen's account, it's likely that Moses was trying to save a life. He wasn't just randomly killing or anything like that. I think probably if he had not intervened, the Egyptian might have killed the Hebrew. I think he was acting to save another man's life. But that's not all spelled out in detail. And that misses the point of why this is all included here. The greater point for us is that when the time came, Moses chose God and his people. That's the ultimate point. And it wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just the emotions got the better of him. He had thought it through and he had already purposed in his heart. He was on God's side. But in that fateful moment, when he intervened to protect one of his relatives by birth, one of his family, by operation, he was renouncing everything that Egypt had to offer. In fact, it culminated in the complete renunciation of everything Egypt had to offer because he had to leave Egypt. Exodus 2.15 says this, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. At that moment, Moses had lost everything from a human perspective. He had no more status to pull on. Whatever power and prestige he might have accumulated as a grandson of Pharaoh, and we don't know if it's the same Pharaoh at this point. It might have been a different Pharaoh. The point, though, was he was a prince. He was... He was a prominent man. He lost it all. Hebrews 11.25 explains that choice this way. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That idea of choosing, the word used there again, it conveys a deliberate, thought-out process. Moses had considered what would it be like if he threw in his lot with his real family, with his real people. He knew it would cost him something. And Moses, even as he was preparing to step in and protect his Hebrew brother, knew there were going to be repercussions if he was found out. That's why he was looking around to see if anybody was watching, looking this way and that. There's a reason he hid the body in the sand. He knew there were consequences. And when he realized that word had gotten out, he knew he was in immediate danger. Go back to Exodus chapter 2 again. Because I read verse 12, and then I read verse 15, but let's look what happened in between. Verse 12, so he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Verse 13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Verse 14, but he said, who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. My point is this, Moses was not naive. It wasn't as though he was living in fantasy land that thought, well, I can do anything with impunity. He knew when he killed 
the Egyptian, there would be consequences if it was found out. He knew that his life would be in danger. He knew that there would be repercussions that couldn't be taken back. And yet he did it anyway. He still defended the downtrodden. He still aligned himself with God's people. And it's all because he had faith. God called him to be the protector of his people. And Moses was willing to embrace that role. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7 here. Because this is one of those types of things that until I was studying this, I've read the Exodus account countless times. I've read the book of Acts countless times. But it's coming together, and you recognize that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Stephen adds some elucidation to what's going on, something of Moses' thinking. And the reason I want to go there is because at this point, Moses is approaching 40. The burning bush is 40 years away. Do you recall at the burning bush, God calls Moses and says, Okay, you go. You're going to deliver my people. I've heard their groanings. I've heard their cries. Moses, you're the man that's going to lead them out. But that wasn't the first time that God related to Moses that he was going to be the deliverer of God's people. Acts chapter 7, verse 24 says this, and we read this earlier, And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25 is fascinating. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The point is this, and I can't tell you how, Moses already knew that he was the deliverer of God's people. I don't know how the revelation occurred. I don't know exactly how that was communicated to him. For all we know, it could have even been told him from childhood that God had a special place for him. We don't know. But the point is, Moses understood that he was going to be used by God to deliver the Israelites 40 years before the burning bush at least. Now, does that negate what happened at the burning bush? Not at all. That was a different, different point of life. It was going to be a completely different circumstance. But Moses had an anointing on his life earlier. And that's why I think by faith he understood that he was choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God. He knew that the time of luxury and plenty and everything was going to be gone. And he said he chose that rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I don't think this is teaching that Moses was actively sinning all the time. I think this is pointing out a truth seen throughout the scriptures. This world and its lusts are deceivers. This world and everything it offers is ultimately destruction. That's what Moses was forsaking. He was walking away from all of the world. He knew that to be a friend with the world, in his case, that was Egypt and its culture and its surroundings and its trappings, was to be an enemy of God. I really think that what's being taught about the heart of Moses and this text of Hebrews is summarized by 1 John 2, 15 and 17. 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I think Moses understood the principles being taught there at that point in his life that's being recorded in Hebrews. That's what verse 26 is also alluding to. Moses understood eternal life was at stake. Verse 26 says this, Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reward's obviously heaven. And somehow, even with the limited revelation of the Old Testament, Moses knew that his suffering was the suffering of God's anointed one. It was identified with the suffering of God's anointed one. There's a lot of speculation if you look into this. People try and explain what is the reproach of Christ. How could he know about the reproach of Christ? Number one, Christ wasn't even born yet, obviously. Centuries later, all of the Old Testament wasn't written yet. Isaiah 53, which we can look at and see so clearly pointing toward, that wasn't there yet. We don't know for certain. But we know this, and I'm just going to make a connection Abraham knew about Jesus, and he knew about Jesus coming. In John eight fifty six, Jesus said, Your father Abraham, he was arguing with the religious leaders of the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So God has a way of conveying to his people his promises. Somehow Moses had some awareness that he was identifying with God's anointed one. Ultimately, he was counting the cost. He knew what he was giving up, but he also knew what he was receiving. That ultimately is the choice that's in front of all of us. When we get to the end of this, we could have, and you'd say, well then why did you spend a couple of weeks teaching on it? You could summarize it really quickly. We spend time teaching it because it's in God's Word and we want to learn it. But the application of it is very simple. Remember, everything in Hebrews 11 is given as an example to God's children so we can walk in the way they walked. So I want to be very clear in the application to all of us. I'm talking to every one of us in the room. And from our standpoint, we don't live in Egypt. We live in America. But in terms of history, we live... In a land of riches. The poorest among us quite often have more than many people throughout history have ever seen. But today, are we actively choosing with our lives, with the decisions we make? Are we choosing America? Are we choosing this American dream? Are we choosing the riches of this world, the pursuits of this world? Are we choosing to live for Christ? There's a very familiar explanation in Joshua 24 of Joshua making a choice to pursue God. 24.15 says this, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you are living. We don't need to 
rewrite Scripture. We would never rewrite Scripture, but putting it in our context of this choice for us, Moses was confronted with, choose whom you'll serve, the gods of America, the gods of wealth and comfort and pleasure and prestige. Ultimately, Moses made the choice that we all should make. These words aren't written about Moses, but they capture his heart. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice before us. That's the ultimate point of all of this. Be careful who we choose. Join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are weak creatures. Lord, every one of us, if millions of dollars were placed in front of us, would be tempted to grab it. I think for many of us, we would grab before we even thought about whether the money came from you or whether the money was going to be a hook to grab our hearts to lead us away from you. Lord, fallen creatures, even redeemed fallen creatures, are easily distracted. And Lord, we live in a world with many distractions. Pray that you would help each one of us approach life with the deliberate, conscious choice that we see reflected in Moses' life, that we would walk away from everything to follow you, that we would dissociate ourselves from anything that could draw us away from you, Lord, that there wouldn't be any sacrifice too great. We pray that you would create in us that type of heart attitude. I pray, Lord, that with that attitude, we would live in a way that would bring you great glory. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.